look at you. Wow. Doesn't Felix do that well? I'm just saying, you can, let's give it up for Felix. I just, that's like, that's like the hardest part to do in a service like this, what he just did. Okay, here we go. If you are a father, a stepfather, a grandpa, a great-grandpa, would you please stand? Would you do that? Just stand where you are. And I just want to say, I know moms get more play in, on their day, but there will be flowers for all of you on your way out. No. Thank you as fathers. You know, it, it's not easy. I can tell you this. Four kids and 12 grandkids. It's a challenging thing to be what, what we feel oftentimes is a protector-provider kind of function, if you will, plus a lot of other things. But thank you for rising to the challenges and encouraging dreams because I think that's what dads can help with in a significant way. Well, we are in the middle of Mark, 40% of the way through the Gospel of Mark, and we're not stopping. It's this like high-speed video where it's one thing after another, and it's, you sort of have to hang on because last week, here was Jesus, and he was feeding like thousands of people and this week, he's walking on water. So at the, at the very least, it's interesting, and it boggles your mind, okay? And this week, I'm just calling this, I am the water walker. If you were to go with me to Washington, D.C., and we'd go to the Pentagon, you'd hear language like that. When people do extraordinary things in the military, oftentimes there, they're called water walkers. And they get that from this passage, that's something that's just sort of beyond the bounds, if you will. And in Mark 6, 6, 45 through 56, which is our text for this weekend, this is the context. First of all, last week, here was Jesus providing food, right? He's feeding thousands in a sit-down meal with a bag lunch, right? This week, he's challenging, and there are thousands of people. This week, he's challenging fear in 12 guys in a boat. So he goes from thousands to 12 guys in a boat. And they're in a storm. And uh, how many of you have ever been in a storm? You, did, you got lots of, yeah, it's different kinds. You got snowstorms, you got rainstorms. But I love the story of the little kid, and it's a thunder and lightning storm. And we've had more thunder and lightning storms here in the last month or so than I can remember in 15 years being here. And so this little kid's in his room. I don't know how old he is, but, it, it, you know, there's a, there's a lightning strike and a clap of thunder, and he says, Mom, nothing. And another one, bam, and, and he calls, Mom. She says, what is it, Jimmy? He said, I'm scared. And about that time, whack, another one, boom, the house shakes. And he says, I'm really scared, Mom. And his mom says, wanting to comfort it's okay, Jimmy, it's going to be all right. This is passing, passing through. And besides, Jesus is in there with you. And he said, Mom, why, why don't you come in here with Jesus and let me go in there with Dad? <laughs> I love that story. I don't know if it connects to anything. I just wanted to tell that story. But. So here's the text. Immediately in 645, Mark 6, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. So they've just had the sit-down dinner for thousands of people. He says, you boys get in the boat and go. And I have this thing when I read scripture that I, I hit something and I say, why? Why did he say that? 
Why did he do that? How did that happen? And you know, I don't know that I have an answer to that, but I've come to the place where I say, if I ask those questions, if it's essential to the story, it'll be in the story. Well, there's no reason given as to why he said, get in the boat and go, go boys. And so we go on. And after leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. And what we call, what this means is that he went up on the mountainside to talk to his father. Seems entirely appropriate for today. And when we pray for these folks going out into missions enterprises, we're talking to the Father for on their behalf. That's what prayer is. By the way, I think this is terrific to have young and old alike going on trips to Hot Springs, Arkansas, Dominican Republic, and, and Bangladesh. Dhaka, I've been in Dhaka, Bangladesh. There's a world of difference between Hot Springs, Arkansas, and Dhaka, Bangladesh. <laughs> But the great I am that Felix referenced and that we'll see again in this text, he's in all those places. That's where he is. So Jesus' mission is to reveal the Father and his character to us, and he talks to his Father all the time. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. Now, this is in two other Gospels, this story. It's also in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of John. And one of them says they were about three miles out on the lake. And here's the Sea of Galilee. Um, and and he saw the, it says he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. And here, here's my how question. How could he see them? Like it's in the nighttime, maybe by the lightning flashes or something. Cause there's a, but if it's important, it would be in the text. So I'm not taking any more time on that. But here's the Sea of Galilee. It's 700 feet below sea level. We're at 5,000 feet above sea level. So it's semi-tropical. It's eight miles wide, 13 miles long, and you have high hills, 2,000-foot hills on this side. And when that cool air comes down and hits that warm air, those of you who are in meteorology or climatology stuff, you know this, I, and you know all the science for it, but you can have explosive, sudden storms, and they're apparently in one of those. And so shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them. It's a very interesting phrase, sort of stops you. It sounds like he's on a Sunday afternoon stroll saying, fellas, how you doing? You know, just what? Well, that actually it, it meant, or one translation of it, the phrasing of it, actually can be, for he intended to pass their way. He intended to pass. He had intention when he went out to the lake. His intention, as we'll see, was to reveal who he was in this moment in time to them. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. Well, I would. I mean, that's weird. I mean, I think it's a ghost. And they cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. What's interesting about this is the superstitions of that local area and that time, this is 2,000 years ago, were that gods and divine beings could walk on water, but ghosts didn't. And in their fear and confusion, they didn't even get that right. They said, because the text says, because they saw him walking on the sea, they thought he was a ghost. Anyway, going on, it says, immediately he spoke to them <clears throat> and said, excuse me, I'm going to turn this off. You're glad I did that. Yeah, <laughs> turn that baby off. Immediately he spoke to them and said, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. And there are various ways, depending on the translation you read, how that is phrased. 
but we'll come to that in a moment. Just so you know, this right here that I just read, that's the centerpiece, in my understanding, of this text. It's not about the storm and the waves and all that. It's this passage. Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. It's the centerpiece. So if you're a physicist, this is the fulcrum. If you're a teacher, it's the big arrow. If you're a builder, it's the foundation. If, if you're a lawyer, it's the premise of your argument. If you're a leader, the core... The core challenge of a leader is to define reality. This is defining reality, and we're going to land here in just a few moments. We're going to come back to this. Then he climbed into the boat with them. The wind died down. They were completely amazed. They're terrified a couple of minutes before. Now they're amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves, and their hearts were hardened. There, there comes another one of those phrases saying, what? They're amazed because they hadn't understood about the loaves. I mean, this was just hours before. This is less than 12 hours before they've, they've passed, they've organized the people, they each got a basket full according to Der, Pastor Derry last week, 12 baskets, 12 disciples, you get your own, I don't know, they were leftovers, and it says they didn't understand about the loaves, and their hearts were hardened. That's, a, that's kind of a harsh phrase, their hearts were hardened. Hardness of heart you find in the Old Testament the New, to, and the New to describe people who choose not to believe. They have hardness of heart. So, and e even if something happens, the message bounces off. It doesn't get through. And in this case, maybe it was for shock value that he says it's because you'll find it, we'll find it again in Mark where he uses that phrase to challenge the disciples. In, in essence saying, don't go there. It feels that don't go there because they are people who are learning how to believe. That's where I am. I'm learning how to believe every day as I go. You say, well, you've been around a long time. You should know how to believe. By well, I do, essentially, but there's always things, places we can learn to trust, other places, other situations, and every situation pretty much can teach us another piece of how to trust and how to believe. When they crossed over, they landed, Gennesaret anchored there, and as soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus, and they ran throughout the whole region, carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. Some thoughts. First of all, Jesus is always teaching. He is called rabbi, teacher, more often in the Gospels than any other title. He's a teacher. And how does he teach? I mean, well, we know how teaching works. Primary way we teach is by example, whether we're teachers in a classroom or whether we're dads or moms. And teaching by example is what we say and what we do. And Jesus, as we've already heard in Mark, <clears throat> speaks authoritatively. He's, a, he's an original, the original, if you will. So he speaks with authority, and he has power over four arenas that they've talked about at least. Power over illness and disease, power over the demonic, power over nature, as we see in this one, and power over death. And so he's, he's that teacher. And when you think about it, I say, okay, so he's teaching all the time. Why is it so hard for me to learn? And, and why doesn't my learning carry over? Because here, 
They've just seen this unbelievable miracle of the feeding of thousands of people. Why doesn't that carry over to walking on the water? Well, maybe it doesn't look the same or it doesn't have the same. I don't know why it doesn't carry over. The closest I can come is my golf game. And, and that's a euphemism for what I do on the golf course. Any of you golfers know that if your swing thought is kill that sucker, it's not going to work out very well, okay? But I can go and hit 50 or 100 balls on the driving range, but when I go to the course, it doesn't carry over. And whatever's going on here with the disciples, it is not carrying over. Second thought is that Jesus meets us in our storms. You say, well, that's pretty obvious. Well, that's why I'm mentioning it, because it is obvious. He meets us in our storms, but I need to be reminded that he meets me in my storm. I don't know if you've ever been in a storm on water, but I have. Seven and a half years old, my mom and my sis and I are coming back from India. My dad stays an extra year. My mom has had physical challenges. My sister had rheumatic fever. I had had malaria and rickets. It's the June of 1949. And we're leaving from Sri Lanka, Colombo, Sri Lanka, to go to Boston. And um, there are eight of us on this ship. And it's not a big ship, it's a small ship. This is it. It's called the Johannes Maersk. Naval people would call this a tub. It's 5,000 tons, which by ship standards is very small. There were eight of us on this. It took us five weeks. It goes a little over 10 miles an hour. And uh, here, here's where we went. This is where we were going. From Sri Lanka, south of India, across the Indian Ocean, around the Horn of Africa, up through the Red Sea, through the Suez Canal, take a hard left, go out through the Mediterranean, cross the Atlantic to Boston. Took us about five weeks to get there. Eight passengers played Monopoly every day. I won one time. <laughs> I hate Monopoly. I'm just saying, just putting it out there. But the challenge was we left two weeks early to beat the seasonal monsoons, the big storms that come down through there, that sort of feed the land, if you will. And uh, that year, the monsoon came two weeks early. And we're two days out in the Indian Ocean, and a typhoon hits, and it's 30 and 40 foot waves, and we're going up and sliding off sideways, or go prow down, and all that water comes over. If you've ever watched the deadliest catch on television, it's like that, except you're in a 5,000 ton freighter. And I'm seven and a half years old, and I'm gonna die. That's what I'm thinking. Everybody is sick. The challenge with being in a storm at night, especially at night, is that you can't see, and you can't hear, and you can't think, and you can't breathe, because there's no point of reference. There's no horizon. You can't see. And when there's no point of reference, you are absolutely disoriented. And I've asked my friend Mackenzie Matthew. You know Mackenzie Matthew. Can you welcome Mackenzie Matthew? Hi, guys. And Mac, Mac is part of our teaching team, part of the pastoral team here, and she's a dear friend. And uh, you have been in a storm. There are physical storms, there are emotional, spiritual, psychological, all of these things. You've been in a storm the last 18, 18 months. Tell us about that. Yep, so November of 2021, I find a lump. Um, I take it pretty seriously, luckily, that fall, as soon as I could, I get in with the doctor, I'm told it's probably nothing, um, but I still go through the whole process of do the next thing, and about a month later, I find out it actually isn't nothing, it's something, and it's pretty scary. Uh, I got a rare form of breast cancer, 
about as aggressive as possible. Um, you know, at the time, I was 33. I had no history, uh, like family history of cancer. Um, I have an 18-month-old son. And yeah, from there, that kind of jump-started me into a treatment plan. I was considered emergent, and from there, it went pretty fast. So I did 16 rounds of IV chemo. I did immunotherapy for a year. I did invasive surgery. Um, I did radiation, and then I did additional oral chemo after that. Like, I thought it would be six months, and it was a year and a half, um, which finished active treatment on Mother's Day, which I got to celebrate with a lot of you. Um, and then I have a surgery coming up this week on Wednesday, where I'll have my final reconstruction, and then I get my port out, so that's a, a big accomplishment, but that's some of the, a really short version of 18 months. This is, this could be a, just a sappy question to ask, but I don't think it is. Through all this, what were you feeling? Yes. I think disorienting is a, is a great word, um, because it, everything, it, we felt very upside down. Um, like everything shifted. I was a capable person who then was not very capable. I spent a lot of time at the doctor. Um, you know, I became someone who, what, who felt sick and looked sick. You know, I was a bald person. Easy on the bald. <laughs> I know. And I was actually really comfortable with being bald, which was also a shock. Me too. Yeah, it's yeah. good. <laughs> I recommend it if you're bald, to feel comfortable being bald. <laughs> But I think those things of like all of the priorities had shifted, the time looked different, my capability looked different, like everything just looked different. And I think, you know, that was the disorienting piece, but it was, it was really scary. I mean, I felt shaky. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes we, we sing like, I won't be shaken, I won't be shaken. Like there's some worship songs where we sing that. And I was like, man, honestly, it was very, very shaky. And there was a period of time, you know, when I got the pathology, which I got it to my phone, I don't recommend that. You know, I'm looking at it, I'm Googling it. You shouldn't also not do that. Um, but I know that I have cancer and I know that it's aggressive and I know that it's bad, but I don't know what I'm looking at. You know, there was a period of time in that window and my husband had COVID at the time. So we were isolating from each other in their house. And then I got COVID the same day as my first oncology appointment. <laughs> and so we had what we called COVID cancer Christmas because um, <laughs> it was right around Christmas in 2021. But that, that period of time was very scary um, and I felt very shaky, so. So, takeaways in terms of learning. Is it, are there, is there a thing or a couple of things that speak to you? Yeah, I could talk for a long time <laughs> about that, don't worry. I won't hear. I'm willing to give you the thought. <laughs> um, you know, I think learning to trust Jesus with my one and only life has become a daily deal for me, um, learning how to be present in today, in what I have today, um, even through the hard stuff, what it means to be present and fully present has been a, a huge thing for me. And then honestly, the biggest thing that um, I learned and I'm learning and I'm continuing to learn has a lot to do with how I discipline my own mind. Um, you know, the, the fear or the, I call it a fear fantasy, I can very easily live into that, entertain that, make home with all those thoughts. Um, learning how to stand on what is true, learning how to tell myself the gospel all the time um, and come back to those things. It's, it's honestly a daily moment by moment invitation that I have um, to learn how to not live in those places and to try to stand on what I know to be true despite what fear can say and where fear can lead me. So those are, I think, those are some of the big things. 
we have 12 grandchildren from age 32 to 7, but we have decided to adopt her. Well, I adopted our, them you, back. You adopted, I adopted us, them. so on, on your behalf, I'm going to give this girl a hug. <laughs> That'd be all right. Thank you, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Jesus walks up to the boat in the storm and shows us who he is, who he is. Take heart, I am, don't be afraid. That language, all already referenced by Felix, is straight out of Exodus, the third chapter, where Moses, who's an 80-year-old guy, he used to be royalty in Egypt, but he killed the guys who ran for his life. So the last 40 years, he's been a shepherd on the backside of the desert, in what we would call Saudi Arabia today, or near there. And he walks out one day, and there's a bush that's burning, and, and it's a talking bush, and you know the story. And God is speaking to him through this bush, and he wants Moses to go back and deliver, lead these Israelites out of Egypt. They've been captives for hundreds of years, and Moses doesn't want to go. He's in every post office in Egypt, you know. They don't want to go back there. And so he asks a who question. He says, uh, who, who am I? He's a stutterer, by the way. Who am I that I should do this? And his second question is, and by the way, my both uh, paraphrase here, and by the way, who are you? And God gives him that answer. You've already heard it several times this morning. I am that I am. It's the most secure name in the universe, and I've said this a lot here. Clearly, it's not a Western name. That would be I do that I do. It's I am that I am. What you do happens on the backstroke. What you, who you are determines what you do. What you do is generated by who you are. And what's interesting to me about this text is that these disciples have been in a boat with Jesus in a storm not long ago. You can read back in Mark, and they were coming across, and Jesus was in the boat. He was asleep in the stern of the boat, apparently. Waves are coming over the gunnels. They think they're going to drown. They wake him up. He calms the, the storm, challenges them. Why are you so, so afraid and have no faith? And they say, they ask the who question. <clears throat> who is this that even, excuse me. Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The first time he said it to the wind and the sea, be still. This time in the storm he says to 12 guys scared out of their minds, be still. And know that I am. Take heart I am, don't be afraid. He calls them to courage and challenges their fear. And he does that by telling him his name. He doesn't say, I've got you, hang on, it's almost dawn, row a little harder, it doesn't say that. He says, take heart, I am, don't be afraid. How many times, how much in my life, in the decades of my life, I have needed to hear that God is there in the moment of tumult. I'm, I'm home now from India, two years. I'm a nine-year-old kid in Oakland, California, and we have a little bungalow there, 1920s, not a very big house. It's dark in my room, and I just, it's, I don't like dark, and so I'm, I'm singing every song I know, you know, like to keep the stuff away, and, and then I start calling my mom, 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 and she's not far. She's only 30 feet. You say, well, why don't you get out of bed, go find, hey, 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 if you're nine years old and it's dark in your room, you are not getting out of your bed to go find your mother. <laughs> 
because the guy under the bed will grab your ankle. And, and, if, and if he doesn't get you, the guy in the closet will. So we're not going there. I say, Mom. Pretty soon she says, what is it, Dick? I say, oh, nothing. I just needed to know you were there. I'm not nine anymore. I'm decades older than nine. I don't call my mother. I say, God, God, God. He says, what is it, folks? I say, oh, nothing. Just needed to know you were there. And when I know he's there, then I get more bold. I say, well, I got this thing here. I got this problem. Just don't stand there. Do something here. And he says, Foth, you don't do anything. You just stand there. You be still and know that I am. That's who I am. In the midst of the tumult, the only thing that's not moving is me. You're moving, your circumstances are moving, ec economies are moving, people are moving, but I'm not moving. Take heart, I am, don't be afraid. There are several accounts of this story. And John was one of the guys in the boat. You know, Peter, James, and John, the close guys to Jesus in the story. John was in the boat, and he wrote his story. You can read it in the Gospel of John. And in there, he quotes Jesus a lot. And when he quotes Jesus, there are lots of I ams. And, and I'm wondering, was he thinking about the boat in the storm when he uses these quotes from Jesus? Listen to how it reads. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate door of the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. I am the alpha and the omega. I am. And as we believe that, as we believe him, we discover who we are. As we explore who the great I am is, the one who spoke the stars into existence and who shaped our lives, he knows our DNA, by the way. That God, when we discover who he is and continue to do it, we keep discovering who we are and what we're for. So here, here's my question. How do you respond to the question, who are you? Not what do you do, who are you? I had a friend come after the, after the first service and said, you know, people always ask you what you do. That's a standard thing, not terrible. And he said, I've gotten in the habit when they say, what do you do? I tell them, I am a follower of Jesus Christ masquerading as a general contractor. I just thought that was a great line. I'm a follower of Jesus masquerading as a general contractor. We are people, aren't we, with layered identities. We get our identities from a lot of different places. I mean, I can just look at my own history. Forgive me for indulging this. But I'm a kid. I'm a missionary kid in India when I'm small. And, and I'm a stutterer, right? I start stuttering when I'm five in this British boarding school. So I'm a missionary kid. I'm a stutterer. When I'm a teen, I become a joke teller and an actor in high school. And Ruth, looking back on that, said, and you did that because you could memorize the words and not stutter when you told the joke or when you did the play. In my 20s and 30s as a pastor counselor, 30s and 40s as a college president, 50s and 60s in Washington, D.C., sort of a life coach thing, and 60s till now, part of all of the above. So we get our identities from various places. I mean, for example, this past week, did you notice that the Nuggets won the championship? For the, I mean, those are, you know. <clears throat> and I'm not a huge basketball, professional basketball, thing but I watched that 
Last game, at least hard for me to watch that. I said, oh man, I don't know about that. But w- when, they had the, when they had the celebration and they kept panning to the family of this guy, this huge guy, Nikola Jokic. Jokic, is that how you say it? And they call him the Joker for short. He's seven feet tall, 285 pounds. His family is over there and they're all wearing T-shirts from Serbia because he's from Serbia. That's part of my identity, right? And they get on the floor and they have all of this. And he's a basketball player. He's an MVP, most valuable player. They just won the championship. But that doesn't seem to be the top of the frame for him when they get the award because he's standing there with his daughter on his shoulder. His identity comes from being a husband and a dad. And that one of the coolest pictures I think I've seen in a long time. <laughs> he's above the crowd, just let me say that. <laughs> Sometimes, high school is the worst we get our identity, we're, we separate into groups, right? I don't know what it is now, but back in my day, it was nerds and jocks and drama mogs and goths and geeks and music people, all that kind of stuff. In the 1950s, a fellow named Fred Rogers in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, he was a sickly boy in musical. He, st- he was at home a lot, and he started sort of having imaginary playmates, and he created worlds that were of interest to him. But when he got to high school, you know, who who wants to go there? But he had somebody from another group, identity group, who befriended him. And it was the captain of the football team in that high school. And all of a sudden, Fred Rogers is cool. And along the way, in his relationships, he committed himself to the great I am, Jesus, who is the Christ. And when that happened, as a result, we got 33 years of Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. There's something about with whom I identify that shapes who I am. So here is Jesus walking up to 12 guys that he's just chosen. He hasn't chosen them very long before. They're newbies, and they're in the boat, and they got some fishermen. You got a tax collector who's a collaborator with Rome. You got a couple of guys who want to overthrow Rome. And he simply says, take courage, I am. Respond to me. Trust me. Discover who I am. Then you'll have an identity that can't be stolen. I, I was doing my Visa business card bill just a few weeks ago, and I looked, and there was a charge for about $2,000. And it was for a trip I took from San Francisco to Honolulu to Guam to Manila to Singapore and back to San Francisco back in March. The problem is I didn't take that trip back in March. Somebody else took that trip with my identity. You know, people can steal parts of our identity. Identity theft is a big deal. You pay money on your phone, make sure that doesn't happen, all that kind of stuff. And the, and the fact is, what is the identity that you have that can't be taken away? What's that one? I listened to Mac say, I was a capable person, then I wasn't a capable person. I had these capacities, then I didn't have those capacities. Back in the day, I did a missionary dependence retreat, military dependence retreat, excuse me, a military dependence retreat in a town called Berchtesgaden, West Germany, in the south of Germany in Bavaria, which is 20 miles from Salzburg, Austria, where they filmed Sound of Music. And uh, it was these young people who came from Army and Air Force and Navy families. And the fellow that was doing it with me, we were team teaching, was named Eddie Washington. He was about 15 years older than I was. And Eddie was an enthusiast. Man, he, he was just terrific. And he did the evenings and I did the mornings. And uh, Eddie could start anywhere in the Bible. He could start in the map section of his Bible and end up on this idea. I am somebody 
in Jesus Christ. That's where he'd go. Where, I mean, he could start in the genealogies, end up, I am somebody in Jesus. And we were doing small groups one morning, and I had them draw their childhood family dinner tables. Where do you sit? How big was it? Where's the dog that you fed the peas to when you were a kid? You know, all that stuff, right? And Eddie drew this. I said, wow, big family, Eddie. He said, not exactly. I was brought up in a boys' orphanage in Rhode Island. Those are the boys sitting around the long table. And those dots on the table are bowls of oatmeal. Every meal, every day, every week, every month, every year of our growing up lives, our house parents sitting at that other table fed us oatmeal. We got meat one time a year at Thanksgiving. Those squares on their table or those rectangles are meat dishes. They had meat every day. And those dotted lines are hate lines. We hated them because they said our value was a bowl of oatmeal. And he said, and then one day, a grandma from across the street came over and asked, asked me to go to church with her on a Sunday night. And I went to church with her on a Sunday night. And at the end of the message, the preacher said, you know, if you feel like nobody or didn't know what's going on, if you follow Jesus, if you commit your heart to him, um, he'll make you somebody. And that night I got up and I walked down that aisle as a 14-year-old and I knelt down there and I gave whatever I understood of me to whatever I could grasp of a God I couldn't see. And I, and I sensed it in my heart and I was so excited. And I went home and I told my parents and when I told my parents, they were angry with me and they beat me to a bloody pulp. And I, I knelt beside my bed that night with blood streaming down my face and I said, Jesus, I don't know why they don't like you. But I just know that I am somebody now and, I, and I'm going to learn to love you because you love me and it changed everything, changed my whole world. They didn't let me go back to church for two years but it made no difference because I knew that I was somebody. There's something about stepping into that in a culture where we have identities that come from everywhere. We have political identities, sexual identities, ethnicities, sports teams, states, countries, economics, positions, all those things. You say, what's your point in saying that again? Because they're all limited. They're all transitory. They all can go away. They're relative. They won't last. The real question is, which identity do I lead with? Which identity do I use? Which identity do I cherish that really makes me somebody, that connects me? What's the identity that gives me hope, that gives me a place to stand, a family to belong to, or spans the globe? You can find that identity in Hot Springs, Arkansas, or Dhaka, Bangladesh, or Fort Collins, Colorado. What's the identity that puts crowds in my life to cheer me on on the journey? Some of us have plunged deeply into that, and some of us have sort of been on the edges, I think. I didn't share this in either of the other two services, and I'm not going to share it in the next one. But I had this impression when I was putting this message together that this morning there would be somebody in your 70s, a guy. And you say as you listen to me, I'm, I'm on the clock, Dick. I know I'm on the clock. I'm not sick, but I'm on the clock. Because when you get to this age, you're sort of counting days down in a lot of ways. And I've, I've been on the edge a lot in my life but in this time in my life, I want to be all in. I want to be all in. And I don't know who you are, but I just want to challenge you this morning 
be that guy who's on the clock and all in because I think there's more to that for you in these days than you've ever experienced in your whole life. So when the whole world goes up in smoke, he still is. Here on this Father's Day 2023 in the tumult of the storm, here he comes. Jesus, Prince of Peace, walking on the water. He's not a ghost. He's the real deal. And ready or not, here he is, and he speaks to us one more time to make sure we get it. Take heart, I am. Don't be afraid. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this moment in time. Thank you for these friends who have taken this time to worship and to hear your word and to be together. And if I can pause in the prayer, I just ask this. Some of us say, I'm in a storm. Some of us say, I'm in a big storm, biggest of my life. Some of us say, my whole life has been a storm. But in this moment in time, you're choosing to respond to the great I am in a fresh way. And as I finish this prayer, you, you just slip up a hand and say, please include me in your prayer because it's stormy where I am right now. Please include me. Just slip up your hand and put it down just all across this space. Just, that's right. Thank you, Lord, that you know the names, the faces, the histories. Thank you that your grace is sufficient. Thank you that you as the great I am just are calling us to yourself every day so that we can know who you are and in knowing who you are better, we know who we are and what we are for. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. Why don't we stand together and sing that song again, The Great I Am. Just worship with your whole heart as the band leads us.
prayer team is coming here to the front. And uh, some of you are saying, I'm in a storm and I'd just like a, just a little bit more help. I'd just like a touch, if you will. And as the prayer team gathers here, just feel free as others leave to step up and just take a moment or a few moments and just let them pray with you. Talk to the Father on this Father's Day on your behalf. I have to tell you that it's a huge privilege to stand here when we are in this space and look out at the sea of faces. And I have no clue where each of us is individually. Half the time, I'm not sure where I am. You know how that goes, you know? But, but to sense that one has a heart for God and to share in that like you are is a, just a tremendous encouragement to me as I, just, as I just look at you. So thank you for being here this weekend. And um, as we go, oftentimes I'll give a benediction or a blessing. Let's have the Lord give the benediction today by saying those words that he said. We're going to put them back up on the screen one more time. And I think we can say, take heart, I am. Don't be afraid on the count of three. And let's give it some punch. Let's not whisper. Let's go after it, okay? On the count of three. One, two, three. Take heart, I am. Don't be afraid. Take that in your heart and have a wonderful week in him. God bless.